Hello again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, CHP episode 218. So happy to be able to spend the next 20, 30 minutes with you. How could I not have included tongue poetry on the original list of topics I brainstormed back in early 2010? As far as Chinese culture goes, well, wouldn't you agree tongue poetry and poetry in general is you know, sort of an important subject? But just like with the subject of Chinese philosophy, I hit this grinding concern that there wasn't enough interest in poetry out in CHP land. So up to now, after languishing on the list of CHP topics for nine years, I'm finally getting around to giving tongue poetry the respect it deserves. In all this time, since the earliest incarnation of the China History podcast, this one topic kept getting requested again and again. So to everyone hammering me since 2010, this one's for you. On one of the recent Chinese literature podcast episodes from the Moore Brothers, well, actually, they're not related, just purely a coincidence that two guys surnamed Moore ended up at the University of Oregon, getting PhDs in Chinese lit, and started a podcast. I was listening to one of their latest that covered a famous Tang poet we'll look at later. And it gave me the sudden inspiration to think about how to best present something that I kept trying to convince myself most of you might pass on. What I want to offer you first in this episode is a concise overview of ancient Chinese poetry before the Tang Dynasty and look at some of the major names to come out of that era. And by the time we finish, whenever that may be, you'll all know why Tang poetry is so important and you'll have a nice understanding of how everything developed from the ancient times during the Zhou dynasty all the way up to and including the Tang. After a lot of fulmination on the matter, I decided I'm not going to recite poems to you and drown you in all the jargon. I'll give you as much background and detail as I can, and then you can decide if this is something you'd like to learn more about and actually read in Chinese or translation some of these great works whose names I'll be giving. I promise not to throw all these terms at you about poetry structure, temporal, logical, and analogical associational structures. I, I had no idea how complicated it was. Metaphors, similes, synecdoches, puns, onomatopoeia, rhyming, reduplicative, compounds, alliteration, parallelism. Is it a hymn, an ode, a song, an elegy, a folk song? Poetry, and for sure Chinese poetry, is an entire world unto its own. Now, besides Lee and Rob Moore's Chinese Literature podcast, there are a multitude of resources out there to satisfy whatever urges you may have to learn more about this subject. And you can rest assured that in the show notes and at the website, I will post a bunch of great resources from some of the most respected translators of Chinese literature in English. Stephen Owen, David Hawkes, Tsai Chi, Robert Ashmore, and Charles Egan among them. In this episode, I thought, let's go back as far as we possibly can to the genesis of the ancient Chinese poetry timeline. Not surprisingly, this was in the Western Zhou Dynasty, where so much of traditional Chinese culture was rooted. You know, we in the 21st century might not appreciate poetry like they did a hundred or so generations ago, 
Here in the U.S., we have our poet laureate, Tracy K. Smith. But once you leave the Library of Congress, poetry hasn't been integrated too much into the workings of the U.S. government. Not that I'm aware of. Well, in ancient China, it was very, very interconnected with the royal court. And from the Zhou founder, King Wen, all throughout imperial Chinese history, poetry was so important and integral to the royal court. And in all of Chinese literature going back to the beginning, and there was a lot of it, poetry stands in the most exalted position. If you can imagine these poems being sung in the Zhou court of kings Wen, Wu, and Cheng, I mean, they'd be accompanied by these really ancient instruments. And the Zhou was famous for its tuned bells, drums, stone chimes. And these sounds, this music, and the recitation of poetry always accompanied ancient court rituals and sacrifices. There was a time in China... I don't know, maybe for a couple thousand years or more, if you wanted to amount to anything in life beyond manual labor, soldiering, and farming, you had to know this stuff. It was essential learning for the civil service exams, the only ticket to the big time for aspiring scholar officials, and it was woven tightly into the fabric of elite and aristocratic society. No kidding, you had to know your poetry to the extent that at social occasions when all the beautiful people of society would gather together to dine, drink tea, wine, or party ancient style, you had to be ready at a moment's notice to stand up in front of everyone and extemporaneously utter a poem that, besides following all the rules, had to appeal to your peers and be somewhat witty as well. A lot was riding and one's ability to rise to the occasion in this respect. During the Zhou, the ancients used to say, Poetry explains what's on the minds of humans. They also said, You can judge a person by their poetry. As far as Chinese poetry goes, it all began with the Shijing. This work has many names, the Book of Odes, the Book of Songs, the Classic of Poetry. It's one of the five classics, the Wu Jing, the Confucian Canon. 305 poems written, it said, between the 11th and 7th centuries BCE. I can't say these are the oldest poems in all of Chinese history, but they're the oldest ones we know of so far. These poems of the Shi Jing Nearly all of them rhyme. Well, perhaps they all did at one time or another. The Chinese language they spoke in later dynasties changed over time to the extent that you know, poems that rhymed in the Western Zhou well, no longer rhymed in the Tang. We got this problem with the English of Shakespeare's time and today's English, say, spoken in the north suburbs of Chicago, for example. It's not the same. The poetry from the Book of Odes well, from a social and historical perspective, offered a little porthole into what was important during these Joe-era times. In studying these lines of poetry, it allows us to understand what mattered to people back then. What were their triumphs and sorrows? Poetry, it's also said, is a reflection of the common people told through the writing of the nobles and elites of the day. 
and all kinds of interesting ways were used in poems to express a message that required subtlety in how it was delivered. Allegory, for example, was a very common literary form very early on. I don't know if the classic of poetry would stand in such an illustrious position as it does if not for one person, and that would be Confucius. As I'm sure I mentioned in that nine-part history of Chinese philosophy epic, it was the great sage who, well, if you believe Sima Qian, picked out the final collection of 300-odd poems from about 3,000 and compiled them into this classic of poetry. Confucius was, as tradition says, the final editor of this work. And for this reason, and the importance Confucius gave to this work, ever since, it's as classic as you can get in ancient Chinese literature. The poems of the Shi Jing all four characters per line. And for this reason, they ultimately became, among other things, a fount of great chengyu, or Chinese sayings. Any old copy of the classic of poetry or book of odes that you might find, the final compilation was finished in the Han Dynasty by Master Mao, Mao Hung. Students and scholars of this classic of poetry or Shi Jing use Master Mao's version of the text and swear by his commentaries. You know how in Mozart's complete works you have Ludwig von Kirchel who cataloged all 600-something pieces, and students and teachers of Mozart would know Symphony Number no. 25 in G minor? Ah, uh, yes, that's Kirchel 183. Well, same with the Book of Odes. Each poem would be Mao number, you know, whatever. Master Mao Hung put them in order and organized everything. This classic from the Wu Jing, the five classics, if you're interested to go check it out yourself, let me tell you, you're walking around lucky and don't even know it. Get on the Google and search for Book of Odes or Classic of Poetry or Shi Jing, and there are translations galore for you to enjoy online, and in dozens of e-stores. Go check it out if you're so inclined. Why pass up the chance to read poetry from over 2,000 years ago? Still affects people today. You know, Chinese characters, especially classical Chinese, were tailor-made for Chinese poetry. In classical Chinese, every character was one syllable and had more than one meaning. Some had several meanings, in fact. I'll add to this, Chinese flexible grammar and all the literary tricks of the trade, and it allowed Chinese poetry, even at a minuscule four characters, four syllables per line, to express something very rich and multidimensional in a way that was not possible to do in English, and not with this mixture of brevity and profundity. I learned something. Classical Chinese is monosyllabic, and not disyllabic like the Chinese language of today. In the classical version, one character was one word that could have meant, you know, 15 different definitions. Disyllabic, like dianhua, two syllables, two characters to say the word for telephone. In the classical version, had they telephones back then, you would have been able to express it in a single character. Well, the moral to this story is that with one character having so many different meanings, well, a poet had plenty of latitude to express themselves. But when you tried to read it in a different language, 
It was easy for stuff to get lost in translation, or at best, not quite grasp the original intended meaning. The matter of translation, we could talk more about that later. Let's try and get out of the Warring States period alive. The venerable and respected Endymion Wilkinson, in his Indispensable Chinese History, a new manual, listed 15 genres of Chinese poetry. In this series, we'll only go over a few. Well, more than a few, but definitely not all 15. Of the pre-Qin dynasty poetry, there are two great works. We just looked at one of them, the Shi Jing, or Classic of Poetry. The other one was the Chu Ci, or the Songs of Chu, also called the Verses of Chu. Chu was one of the warring states. The Chu Kingdom ran from 403 to 227 BCE. They were among the seven states that made it to the final round of this Zhanguo, or warring states competition. Of course, the king of Qin, Ying Zheng, and his armies in their effort to unify China put an end to the state of Chu until it rose again briefly during the Chu Han contention. Chu was culturally unique and rich. Han culture from the Yellow River Plains had early on wafted into Chu, but the people there remained separate and unique in what they still retained from earlier times. They had their own language, religion, myths, painting, calligraphy, music, and as we see with the Chu Ci, they had their own poetry as well. The thing about the songs of Chu was that well, it was quite a departure from the poetry found in the Shi Jing. Chu was not anywhere near the Yellow River Plain, where core Chinese civilization flourished. They were located in and around Hubei province, on the other side of the Yangtze River, the south side. Remember, everything in Chinese history started in the north and expanded southward. So by the time the Qin forces vanquished Chu once and for all in 223 BCE, well, that part of China all had their own thing going on all these centuries, including their own poetry. Shamans who communicated directly with the gods were very tied to true traditions. It was a most spiritual culture. And these shamans, or wuxi, who lived down in Chu, well, they communicated directly with the supernatural. And this supernatural, you see it in Chu poetry. These people of Chu state, they had their own Ci form of poetry. It was much longer than any poem you'll find in the Shi Jing. It had all kinds of new ways to express oneself and to present a whole epic story. This new form of poetry used rhythms not heard before. It didn't flow in one steady and predictable manner. There were abrupt halts. Exclamations, both soft-spoken and majestic, plenty of exaggeration and hyperbole, and filled with excitement and tragedy. Yeah, those 3rd and 4th century BCE folks in North China who got a load of this new lyrical poetry, that was something totally new and a grand departure from what everyone had been brought up on. The one poet whose name goes hand-in-hand hand with the Songs of Chu, is, of course, Chu Yuan. Chu Yuan, because popular history always gets more ink than academic history, is better known as the inspiration behind Dragon Boat Festival. 
his story and the whole Dragon Boat legend sort of eclipse the narrative that says he was the author of the earliest poems of the Chutsu and acted as the inspiration for all the poems that followed in this Tsu style that he created that became all the rage during the Han Dynasty. Qu Yuan, he's the first poet in Chinese history who's mentioned by name. The Book of Odes, classic of poetry, no one knows who wrote those. But the Chu Tzu and this whole Tzu genre of Chinese poetry, this lyric poetry it's been described, that was Qu Yuan. Qu Yuan, he lived sometime between 340 to 278 BCE, Warring States period. He was an official who served the king of Chu. One of the good things about the songs of Chu is that they are all wrapped around the exciting history of these final decades before the triumph of Ying Zheng and the start of the Qin dynasty. The king of Chu, during Chu Yuan's time, was King Huai, Chu Huai Wang. Well, late in the 3rd century BCE, Qin state, with the pugnacious King Zhaoxiang in charge, sought to deal with their biggest competitor at the time. This was the state of Qi in and around Shandong. King Zhaoxiang of Qin knew he had to bulk up his kingdom if he was going to take on such a powerful state as Qi. And the only way to do that was to first push eastward. Warring states aficionados know this story well, how King Huai of Chu, despite the copious amounts of good advice he got from his most loyal and patriotic officials, Chu Yuan most notably, chose to follow the wrong advice, and in so doing, caused the downfall of this once great kingdom along the Yangtze. It's one of the more well-known narratives how King Huai led his state into a couple disastrous battles that annihilated his once-feared army, and how he trusted in the wrong advisors and ended up dying a prisoner in Xianyang, the Qin capital, in 296 BCE. It's all told in the records of the Grand Historian, and most famously in Chu Yuan's poem, Li Sao, or Encountering Sorrow. This is by a landslide, the most famous work among the 60 poems that comprise the Chu Tzu. In fact, so overwhelmingly famous is this poem, above all the others, this Chu Tzu genre of Chinese poetry is also referred to as Sao poetry, from this poem, Li Sao. I'd read it for you, but it's pretty long. This poem by Chu Yuan was one long lamentation for Chu and the state that the government had degraded to, which was the cause of all this, he lamented the way he was treated and that his patriotism and dedicated service to the king was not appreciated, and that in return for his patriotism, his diligence as an official, not to mention his sincere loyalty, Chu Yuan was slandered and banished to the south. And during this period of exile, Chu Yuan wrote his greatest poems, including the Li Sao. And as an act of patriotic protest in his place of banishment after suffering at the hands of self-serving, manipulative, and corrupt officials, Qu Yuan waded into the Milo River, not far from Dongting Lake, and drowned himself. And here, in this final act of defiance, Qu Yuan provided all the inspiration that was needed 
to launch the legend of the Dragon Boat Festival and the races that are part of this ancient holiday, still celebrated today in China and well, wherever there are enough Chinese to crew a couple of dragon boats. He's been in and out of vogue throughout Chinese history, sometimes a patriot, sometimes a troublemaker, depending on who was in power and what kind of ruler they were. Qi Yuan was a sensitive subject, and his ghost was always hanging around wherever the emperor of China went. You see, when the local people who lived along the banks of the Milaw River learned that their beloved Qi Yuan had walked into the river carrying a large stone, they rushed to save him. But it was all in vain. He was already gone. And in their terrible grief at this tragedy, they at once began violently splashing the water and started beating loud drums to ward off whatever evil spirits had been hanging around. Then they ran back to their homes and rolled balls of rice to throw into the water to offer the river spirits who they wanted to appease and who they appealed to. And they took these balls of rice and wrapped them in silk fabric and cast them into the Milo Jiang. Later on, this tradition of a silk wrapper will be replaced with bamboo or other kinds of leaves, lotus, banana, or other suitable leaves that are good for wrapping and leave behind their own distinct flavor, too. And these wrapped balls of rice became what we call today zongzi, glutinous rice balls with all kinds of fillings, both sweet and savory. And what mooncakes are to mid-autumn festival... That's what Zongzi are to the Dragon Boat Festival. And this legend of Qu Yuan from nearly 23 centuries ago was duly recorded in Sima Qian's Shiji as a noble act of defiance against corrupt and ungrateful rulers. And believe me, Qu Yuan won't be the last one in the annals of Chinese history who does what he did. The noble and righteous official, slandered and exiled wrongfully for a deed he did not commit. Well, this became a theme that kept on being repeated all the way into modern Chinese history. From this theme of the wrongly accused official emerged a heck of a lot of novels, poems, plays, and songs. You remember Shirley, a variation of this theme in the play Hai Rei, Dismissed from Office. Hai Rei Ba Guan. Well, that 1960s play about the Ming Dynasty official, Hai Rei, didn't cause the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, but it sure helped grease the skids. Anyway, Sima Qian himself was the victim of duplicitous officials who stabbed him in the back with their lies and whispers to the king. And this grand historian, as we recall from past episodes, after being wrongfully accused, was given the choice of castration or suicide, and he chose the former in order to live to complete his great masterwork, The Records of the Grand Historian. So it's no surprise that he was able to relate to Qi Yuan and to sympathize for his plight, you know, having suffered something similar himself. Next episode, we'll pick up with the new form of poetry that emerged from the popularity of this Tsi form of poetry. We'll look at Jia Yi and the Fu style of poetry that he was an early master of. One of the early Fu poems written by Jia Yi, who lived during the Western Han, was Diao Qu Yuan Fu, Lament for Qu Yuan. And it was in the Western Han Dynasty that a big 
royal gust of wind blew into the sails of Qu Yuan and his Chu Tzu poetry, none other than the dynasty founder himself, Liu Bang, who we know as Emperor Han Gaozu. He loved him. Okay, the title of this episode was History of Tang Poetry Part 1, and all we've been talking about is the Zhou and a little bit of early Han. Well, once again, my marketing team said, use the Tang name in the title and that will attract the crowds. So for all of you who listened in vain for the Tang Dynasty part, to learn about Li Bai, Du Fu, Wang Wei, and others, I tricked you. But come back next time. You never know. You might get lucky. We'll finish up with Chu Tzu poetry, discuss Fu poetry, and much more. Okay, Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off, as usual, for now at least, from the city of Los Angeles, California. We already moved the clocks forward, thanks God. Summer's coming, my all-time favorite part of the year, and I can't wait. Come back for part two next time in what is already shaping up to be another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.